Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. We hear most often about police that cross that line to protect one of their own. Today we have a story that is the exact opposite of that. In this case, police focus so narrowly on someone who had once been their brother in arms that even when his innocence was obvious, they just couldn't see it. David and Kim Cam, with their two children, Brad, who was seven, and Jill, who was five, seemed to be the perfect family with the perfect life. They lived in a nice house in a small town called Georgetown in southern Indiana, just over the border from Kentucky. Kim was born March 14, 1965, to Frank and Janice Wren, while David, a year older, was born March 23, 1964. Both never strayed far from home and settled in the same county they grew up in. Kim dreamed of getting married, having 2.5 kids, the white picket fence, the whole big American dream for little girls back then. When Kim met David, her family loved him. He came from a well-off and influential local family and was seen as a mentor in the community even in his early 20s. Kim's sister remembers she thought he was cute and nice, and he really helped bring Kim out more as a person. Kim and David got married in the spring of 1989 and began building their blissful life together. Four years into their marriage, their first child, Brad, was born. A couple years after Brad, Kim got pregnant with their daughter, Jill, and was ecstatic to round out their beautiful family. Kim raised the children while working full-time as an accountant. David was a state trooper and was well-liked and respected by his colleagues and community. David was known as a very trusting, loyal, and extremely honest guy by everyone who knew him. At least, that's how most people saw him. The truth was, while Kim was pregnant with Jill, David had an affair with a woman he'd met at the gym. Well, that escalated quickly. What an ass. I hate cheaters, but it's even grosser to cheat on your wife who's pregnant. She's over here carrying a life for you, and you're out there getting nasty. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that kind of thing happens a lot, and it's like, dude, you helped make that baby, and now she has to do all the hard work. The least you can do is respect her and keep it in your pants. Exactly. I hope that (laughs) affair didn't last long. David came clean and took responsibility for the affair that lasted about six months. He claimed it was sheer stupidity, and he allowed himself to get caught up in something that never should have happened. David moved out, but a few months later they reconciled, and things seemed to be back to normal. In fact, things seemed better than ever when in May of 2000, David quit his job as a state trooper, where he'd worked for many years. Working for his uncle's construction business, he was making more money and had more time for his family. He had never been happier. He was known to frequently make the joke that he should have left the force years ago. September 28th of 2000 was like any other Thursday. School for the kids, work for the parents, evening sports and errands. David went to his weekly basketball game with his friends at a church not far from his house at 7 p.m. While Kim and Jill ran errands until time to pick up Brad from swim practice. Kim and the kids would have arrived home at 7.30 p.m. like always, and David would come home a couple hours later just in time to tuck the kids in for bed. 
At 9.20, David said goodbye to his buddies and drove the five minutes to his house. As soon as he pulled in the driveway, he knew something was wrong. The first thing he saw as he jumped out of his car was the garage door open and there was a body laying motionless on the ground. Blood was everywhere running down the driveway. So it must have just happened, though, because when I drive by a neighbor's and their garage is open, I at least take a glance at it. Someone would have noticed a body on the ground. Well, there's a photo of the house on our website, and it looks like it's kind of out of the way. Like, maybe not very many people drive by that side of the house. So who was it that was on the ground? As soon as he realized that it was Kim and she was dead, he started looking for the kids in a panic. He quickly realized they were both still in the SUV, but both were slumped over and not moving. Jill was cold to the touch, but Brad was still warm. Trying to save his son, he reached over Jill and pulled Brad from the SUV and started trying to perform CPR, but it was no use. His entire family was dead there in his garage. Frantically, he called 911 and stepped into his old cop mentality to try and get some help fast. He demanded to speak with the post commander immediately and urgently begged, get everyone out here to my house now. My wife and kids are dead. He tried to calm David down, telling him it would all be okay, but David was hysterical and replied, it's not going to be okay. Once he was sure police were on their way, he ran across the street to his grandfather's house to tell his uncle who was staying there what had happened. What a freaking nightmare. We've listened to that call, and in my personal opinion, he sounded like a wreck, and it sounded genuine. I agree. He was trying to keep it together and talk clearly, but he was a wreck and seemed genuinely devastated and freaked out. Being that he was a former police officer, I'm sure this investigation started immediately. One of the first officers on the scene was Detective Sean Clemens, one of David's closest friends. As he looked over the crime scene, things just weren't adding up. It's normal for police to automatically suspect a spouse in cases like this, but they knew David, and he wasn't a violent guy. The detectives first became suspicious of David when he told them that he tried to revive Brad before realizing that his entire family was already dead. They found this odd because usually, if you have someone come in contact with a crime scene and they talk about rendering aid or being involved in some way, then there are usually footprints. At the Cam family crime scene, they didn't see any footprints at all. It wasn't just the lack of footprints. The whole scene was just too neat, like someone had tried to clean up. Evidence was everywhere, but it didn't make sense. Kim and Jill were both shot in the head execution style, and Brad had been shot in the abdomen as he tried to dive over the seat into the back cargo area of the SUV. The bullet exited through his back, eventually killing him. Some of the blood flow from the garage appeared to be watered down, like someone had tried to clean it up. Detectives found a wet mop in a bucket in the utility room of the house with a strong smell of bleach. Following the trail of water and blood through the house, they discovered that the water used for cleaning up the blood had been tossed over the back deck into the yard. What was the actual point of attempting to clean up the crime scene if you're going to leave the bodies there? Yeah, and it sounds like the blood was still everywhere, so clearly the effort didn't work if someone did really try and clean it up. That's so weird of a killer to do. He could have at least closed the garage. Stranger yet, Kim's shoes had been placed neatly on top of the car, which would have been out of character for Kim to have done herself. 
They also found a palm print on the outside of the SUV door, likely from the shooter bracing themselves and leaning in to shoot the kids in the back seat. They also found a gray sweatshirt tucked under Brad's body with multiple bloodstains on it. David didn't recognize the sweatshirt and insisted that it must have been left by the killer. Handwritten inside the collar was the name Backbone. Detectives didn't believe things had occurred the way David said they did, but he claimed he had an ironclad alibi at the gym with 11 witnesses he was playing basketball with that would back him up. David insisted that he loved his family more than anything and he could never hurt them. A couple days later, while interviewing the neighbors, detectives found a witness that claimed they heard three distinct gunshot sounds between 9.15 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. That is all they needed to arrest David for the murder of his family. Their theory was that David arrived home, killed his family, cleaned up the crime scene a little, and then called the police, all within seven minutes. On October 1st of 2000, three days after the murders, David was arrested by Indiana State Police and charged with three counts of murder. Kim's family couldn't believe David would do this and openly told police they must have made a mistake. David's family, however, was outraged. They understood that couples could snap and kill their spouse in the heat of passion or whatever, but not your own kids. It goes against parental instinct to hurt your own children, and they didn't believe David could ever hurt Brad and Jill. On top of that, there's no obvious motive for why he would want to kill his entire family. While our past cases we've told on here prove otherwise, parents are definitely capable of killing their children, and it's usually without a good reason. Very true. We have seen you never can tell who's capable of hurting the ones they love, even their own children. Exactly. As disgusting as that is, you never know. Some people are just really good actors. As police dug into David's private history, they started learning about his dark secrets. It looked like David had been leading a double life. It turned out that affair while Kim was pregnant was not an isolated incident. Police uncovered a dozen women who said they had affairs with David while he was married. The common response from these women was that David was very flirty, and it was assumed that he would hit on any woman he spent time with. He didn't appear to be after long-term relationships, but rather he was only interested in casual hookups. Police decided this was a reasonable motive, suggesting he was tired of being a family man and wanted freedom to be the playboy he seemed to want to be in secret. Police were still suggesting that David killed his family quickly as soon as he got home from playing basketball just before 9.30 p.m. But scientific evidence put that theory in jeopardy, the blood in the driveway had coagulated and separated before police arrived, placing the event hours before they got to the scene, not minutes. The time of death from the coroner also supported the fact that Kim and the children died around 7.30 p.m. while David was at the church with his friends. Well, that doesn't sound like he would have had time to kill his entire family, and if witnesses were with him at church, I doubt they'd lie for him. He's still a terrible person, though, for being a serial cheater. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't sound like a very good husband cheating on her all the time, but I don't know how he could have done it while maintaining that alibi. Was that all the evidence? Well, the medical examiner also made a horrifying discovery when performing the autopsy on little Jill. 
When she was removing Jill's clothing, she saw blood while removing the girl's underwear. The exam showed that Jill had suffered blunt force trauma to her genitals, suggesting that she had been molested. The medical examiner explained that in her personal opinion, the trauma was definitely sexual molestation, but in her professional opinion, it could have been caused in other ways as well. But if Jill was molested, it's hard to say who did it. The medical examiner also said it was likely the molestation happened within hours of her death, but David hadn't seen the kids in nearly 13 hours that day. She eventually raised her window to within 24 hours, which opened it up to the time frame David would have been around her. David and his family were adamant that he never molested Jill and were devastated and infuriated by the accusation. This discovery handed police an additional theory for the motive behind David committing the murders. They now believed that he had been molesting his five-year-old daughter and maybe Kim had found out so he had to silence them to keep his secret. This theory convinced Kim's family of David's guilt because they don't believe Kim would have allowed anyone to touch her little girl, but she would have trusted her husband. This still left the timeline issue, though. The police shifted and suggested that all 11 of his witnesses could be lying to cover for David. Alternatively, if they are telling the truth, the police believe he could have played the first game, snuck out, went home, molested his daughter, killed his family, hastily tried to clean up, then went back to the gym to play the last game of the night to round out his alibi. Why would 11 witnesses lie for him? In the house of the Lord at that. (laughs) (laughs) It would be almost impossible to convince 11 people to lie for you about an alibi like that. Plus, that series of events on that timeline is a real stretch. You would have to be a seriously cold-hearted psychopath to do something like that and then immediately go back and finish the basketball game like nothing had happened. Right. I don't think he would have molested his daughter either. That sounds like a reach to me. Yeah. To support this theory, detectives believed they had proof that David was at the house when Kim and the kids arrived home. According to phone records, David made a business call from his house at 7.19 p.m., placing him at the scene of the time of the murders. But if David made that call from his house, he would have had to leave the basketball game 15 minutes after arriving. And all 11 witnesses says that he stayed and played the first game that started at 7.15 p.m. There was no way he could have been in both places at once. The detective's explanation was that witnesses lie and phone records don't. David's defense team, however, did not take the phone records at face value and discovered that the phone company had made a mistake. Indiana is one of two states that has two different time zones. David's home is in one time zone, but his cell phone company's computers are in another time zone. A phone company employee admitted that a glitch in the company's computer resulted in an incorrect time on the bill. David's phone call was actually placed at 6.19 p.m., over an hour before his family returned home. These obstacles to the detective's theories didn't discourage the prosecution, though. On January 14th of 2002, David's trial began. 
Defense attorney Stacy Uliana watched as the prosecutor brought in a parade of women who'd had flings or flirtations with David over the last 10 years. The prosecution also drilled heavily on the accusation that David molested his daughter, even though he had not been charged with that. The strategy was character assassination, and it was effective. The only real physical evidence they had against David was eight microscopic blood spots of Jill's blood on his shirt. A blood splatter expert testified that it was clearly high-velocity blood splatter, and it was proof that he killed them. My only problem with them bringing in these flings is that most men that end up annihilating their families usually only have one woman that they're madly in love with. He sees the only way of being with that woman is to get rid of his family. David's not in relationships. He's just sleeping around. And he's successfully sleeping around. It sounds like he didn't need to get rid of his family because he already had his cake and was eating it too. Right. What's up with this blood splatter expert? This is the first time this has been discussed on an episode. Crime scene reconstructionist Rod Engelert from Portland, Oregon, believes that every bloodstain tells a story. He says high-velocity blood splatter, which is blood that has been hit by something going very fast, you know, like a bullet, is the key to solving this murder mystery. Rod, who was hired by the prosecution, examined the t-shirt David wore the night of the murders. He found eight tiny dots, which he identified as high-velocity blood splatter. He claimed the blood splatter was so unique and so separate from the other stains that the person would have had to have been within four feet of the victims when the shots were fired. The defense called their own expert, who said he has never in his career seen someone shot at close range and the shooter only gets eight microscopic drops of blood on them. There would have been a lot more, hundreds even. He said the eight drops are more consistent with David leaning over Jill to check on Brad and his shirt brushing against her hair. The defense team's blood expert also challenged the assertion that someone had tried to clean up. They explained to the jury that the long ribbon of blood on the floor went from dark red to clear, which was a natural reaction called serum separation that occurs when blood is exposed to air. Part of the issue with Rod's testimony was that he had never actually been at the crime scene. He had sent an independent contractor, Rob Stites, to take pictures and form an opinion on Rod's behalf. But Rod backed up Rob's conclusions, agreeing passionately that the blood evidence proved without a doubt that David killed his family. Well, that's interesting. The blood splatter could have also got on David when he was giving his son CPR. That's also possible. I agree with the defense team's expert. He would have been covered in blood if he shot them at close range. It's not sounding too good for David, though. The defense team also flagged the prison-issued gray sweatshirt found under Brad's body and the unknown palm print. If you remember, on the neck of the sweatshirt was the handwritten word backbone, which had to mean something. A private lab tested the sweatshirt for DNA, and there was actually a lot of DNA on it. They discovered DNA from both Brad and Kim, as well as DNA from an unknown man and an unknown woman, but no DNA at all from David was on the sweatshirt. The prosecutor told the defense team that the DNA was submitted to the FBI to run through CODIS, 
but since the DNA analysis wasn't included on the evidence list, it was assumed that it didn't get a hit. It was up to the jurors to decide what to believe. Eight spots of blood that proved David did it, or 11 witnesses who say he couldn't have committed the crime. On March 17, 2002, after three days of deliberation, the jury found David guilty on three counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 195 years in prison. One of the jurors, Judy Price, told the media that the deliberations were the most gut-wrenching experience she had ever experienced in her entire life. When deliberations started, jurors say the vote was 8-4 to four in favor of convicting David. In just a few hours, it was 10-2. to two. That's where things got stuck and ugly. Some jurors were crying, others were yelling. The biggest obstacle to a guilty verdict was the testimony of the basketball players. But in the end, the jurors came to believe that David had the opportunity and the motive. The idea that he might have been molesting his little girl turned many of the jurors against him. Even though David was never charged with molesting Jill, that allegation weighed heavily on jurors' minds. Those eight tiny blood spots won out in the end. Trusting the blood expert and his very convincing testimony was their legal responsibility. Well, it's hard convicting a man who may be innocent and is clearly still grieving due to the loss of his entire family. I get how hard it must be for juries to hold the fate of someone's life in their hands. Not an easy decision for sure. What if it wasn't him? Now he's going to rot in jail knowing his family's killer is still out there. This wasn't the end for David Cam, though. He continued to maintain his innocence and wouldn't rest until he got true justice, not only for himself, but for his wife and children, too. We'll be back with the rest of the story after this short break. Two and a half years after his conviction, David and his attorney filed an appeal. Surprisingly, in August of 2004, the Indiana Court of Appeals overturned his conviction. All that testimony from women about their past relationships with David had no direct relevance to the crime and had biased the jury against David as a person. The prosecution decided to take him to trial again, but to focus on the molestation allegations as the motive this time. The defense team decided to push for another run through CODIS for the unknown DNA found at the crime scene. To their surprise, it was revealed that while the original prosecutor had put together the request to run the DNA, they had forgotten to submit the request, so the DNA was never actually run. Once they actually ran the DNA through CODIS, they got an immediate hit. The genetic material belonged to a convicted felon with a history of attacking women named Charles Bonet. Charles had recently been released from prison only a few months before the murders took place. It was quickly discovered that his nickname was Backbone, leading to the obvious conclusion that the sweatshirt did in fact belong to him. Additionally, fibers found in the sweatshirt were consistent with the carpeting inside the cam's residence. With this lead, a latent print examiner was able to also match the palm print found on Kim's car to Charles. Seriously? They forgot to submit the DNA for testing? That is crucial evidence from the scene of a triple murder. Processing all of the evidence is like literally step one. I would have expected to hear about the DNA evidence before the blood splatter analysis. <laughs> so who's this Charles guy? Did he and David know each other? 
Charles grew up in the same town as David, but there's no evidence that they knew each other. He started his criminal career in the late 80s while studying education at Indiana State University. He had a shoe fetish that started as just stealing shoes and eventually escalated into hurting women he was stealing the shoes from. There had been a string of attacks in the area around the university, and the man terrorizing women for their shoes was always wearing the same mask. He was nicknamed the Shoe Bandit by authorities. Charles was finally caught when he attacked Donna Enos and her two roommates on October of 1992. The three girls were getting into Donna's car when out of nowhere, Charles appeared and tried to steal a shoe off one of the women in the car. He waved a gun in their faces when they put up a fight. Donna remembers his demeanor quickly changed from calm to angry. He told the girls that if they did anything, he was going to kill them. If they tried to run or scream, he would kill them. Luckily, a neighbor saw the commotion and called the police. Charles was arrested for three counts of robbery, attempted robbery, resisting law enforcement, and four counts of battery. This guy is a weirdo. The shoe bandit? (laughs) (laughs) Like... I know people who have a feet fetish, but I've never heard of one having a shoe fetish. You know, I think there was a serial killer with a shoe fetish. But anyway, back to Charles. They brought this guy in right away, right? On February 17th of 2005, Louisville Metro police officers located Charles and brought him in for questioning. At approximately 4 p.m. that day, the police officers advised Charles of his Miranda rights at which time Charles acknowledged that he understood those rights. Getting this guy to talk wasn't the problem. From that point on, they had a hard time getting him to stop talking. But the real question is, could they believe anything he said? Charles told police officers that he had never met David and that he had never had any weapons. He also denied being at the crime scene and claimed that he did not assist in killing those victims. Charles agreed to take a polygraph test regarding his involvement in the murders though he made sure the results couldn't be used in court before he signed the consent form. Following the test, the polygraph examiner concluded that Charles was deceptive in answering questions as to whether he had shot anyone in Indiana, whether he was present during the shootings at the cams, and whether he had seen the person who shot them. Investigators resumed their questioning of Charles from there. He continued to deny knowing David or having any involvement with the crime scene. Police made the decision to let him go, but first placed a tracker on his car. He's so sketchy. It kind of shows that you don't expect to pass a polygraph if you feel the need to confirm that it can't be used against you in court. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of polygraph tests, and I don't suggest taking one without a lawyer's consent if you really are innocent. But something's definitely up with this guy. So they put a tracker on his car. Where did he go? The next day, they tracked Charles' car to the cemetery where the victims were buried. Though he would later claim he was simply asking about a price for a mausoleum for his mother, sister, and himself. They brought him in for more questioning, and he continued to deny any involvement until they confronted him with his palm print left at the scene. At that moment, he said, and I quote, All I know is David Cam was the shooter. That's all I'm going to say until I get an attorney. End quote. Charles was arrested and charged in the murders of Kim, Brad, and Jill. A short time later, Charles requested to speak to the investigators again. He signed a form stating that he had requested counsel, but had changed his mind and no longer wanted an attorney. 
Charles told them that he had first met David in July or August of 2000 at a pickup basketball game. He then ran into David again at the grocery store in September, at which time David asked him if he had a clean gun Charles could sell to him. The day of the murders, he drove out to David's house, and Charles wrapped a handgun in his own sweatshirt and gave it to David in exchange for $250. Charles stated that David did not tell him what he was going to do with the gun. He wrote out his statement and was returned to his jail cell. Uh, first of all, he just happens to go to the same cemetery as the victims right after he's questioned about them. I don't buy it. Secondly, in what world would a stranger who you randomly played basketball with once bump into you at the grocery store and out of nowhere ask you for an untraceable (laughs) gun? (laughs) It's just his word. It's not like he has any proof that they were actually together. Yeah, his story is real thin. On March 7th of 2005, Indiana State Police Sergeant Myron Wilkerson went to the jail to speak with Charles. They talked for about two and a half hours. Approximately 40 minutes into the interview, Charles told Sergeant Myron that he had followed David to the residence, waited outside, and waved to Kim when she arrived. He claimed that he had heard David and Kim fighting and eventually heard Kim say no, which was followed by a gunshot. Charles said he then heard Brad say daddy, which was followed by two more gunshots. Next, he claimed David came outside, pointed the gun at him, and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. Charles said that sparked a rage in him, and he ran inside the garage after David. At the conclusion of the interview, two other investigators joined the conversation to speak with Charles as well. Charles continued that he saw Kim on the ground next to the Bronco and tripped over her shoes. He said he picked up the shoes and placed them on top of the SUV. He then observed Jill that was still in her seatbelt and Brad was doubled over in the Bronco in the rear seat of the passenger side. As Charles was leaving the scene, he claims that he saw a woman pull up into David's driveway. He claims that he did not report the crimes because his sweatshirt was still at the scene. This is super suspicious. This police officer visits him and suddenly he has a much more convincing story explaining the evidence and how David could have done it. He was totally fed that story. None of this even makes sense. If David was playing basketball at the church, why was Charles even there in the first place? It sounds like someone helped Charles come up with a story that fits with the prosecution's theory that he snuck out of the basketball game. They didn't fall for this in court, did they? Charles was charged with three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. His trial began on January 10th of 2006. At trial, his ex-girlfriend Mala testified that Charles told her one afternoon that he was going to go help a buddy and left with his backpack. Investigators believed that this buddy was David Cam. At the time, Mala didn't think much of it, but a few hours later, he came home and woke her up. She explained that he was excited and was trying to catch his breath. She saw a significant scrape on his knee and vaguely remembers him being all bloody. On February 23rd, the jury found Charles guilty as charged and he was sentenced to 225 years in prison. Charles' dramatic entrance into the Cam's murder case seemed to answer a lot of questions about the crime scene, especially the bizarre placement of Kim's shoes that were on top of the SUV. But Charles denied being the killer, stating he would rather kill himself than kill kids. Five years after David's family was murdered, the pieces of the puzzle were finally beginning to fall into place. 
Charles was a man with a lot of explaining to do, starting with that sweatshirt. While he claims he got rid of it shortly after he was released from prison, telling investigators he threw it into the Salvation Army box a month before it showed up at that crime scene. Wait, wait, wait. Earlier we talked about how he wrapped the gun in his sweatshirt. Now he donated it to the Salvation Army? He can't keep his story straight. That should have been a huge red flag for investigators. Okay, so now Charles has been convicted of the murders. Did they drop the charges on David? David hoped that after five years in prison, he would finally go free thanks to this new suspect. Minutes after David was told they're dropping the charges against him, he was charged again, this time with three counts of murder and an additional charge of conspiracy to commit murder. The prosecution now decided that David and Charles conspired together to kill his family. His attorneys got the very publicized case moved to another county where the judge set bond to $20,000. David's uncle wasted no time and went straight to the bank to get his nephew out and take him home to await this next trial, surrounded by the people who loved and believed in him. The next prosecutor said they were going to start over from scratch and reinvestigate every single aspect of this case. But once the second trial began on January 17th of 2006, it was clear that they were using the exact same playbook as the last prosecutors, and they didn't reinvestigate at all. The prosecution presented the same blood splatter evidence, again tried to use the same tactics to discredit his alibi, as well as presented three inmates who were housed in the same jail as David, who said that David admitted to killing all of them. Additionally, the prosecution presented Charles' testimony that he conspired with David to commit the murders. The prosecution relied heavily this time on the suggestion that David had molested their five-year-old daughter. The prosecution speculated that the daughter either had told her mother or was going to and that David killed the family to keep his dark secret. The defense argued that there was no evidence that David ever molested his daughter and suggested that if there was evidence of molestation, it was caused by Charles. He was the sole perpetrator and had previously been convicted of assaulting women. However, the judge barred the defense's evidence from the trial for unknown reasons, but he did dismiss the conspiracy charge. During closing arguments, the prosecution argued David not only had the opportunity to kill his family, he had a motive. They reiterated their theory that the motive was Kim was leaving David and she was leaving him because he had molested his daughter. On March 3rd of 2006, David was convicted again of three counts of murder. This time, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jeez, the prosecution and the judge seemed determined to pin this murder on him, despite any evidence to the contrary. Yeah, they must really hate cheaters, because I don't know why else they would want it out for David so bad. (laughs) I doubt it had anything to do with cheating, but if they really believed he molested his five-year-old daughter... That could make a lot of people hate him. Definitely true. In June of 2009, David appealed again and his conviction was overturned again. This time because they can't tell the jury he was molesting Jill without proof that he actually did. Prior to the third trial, the judge barred any testimony related to molestation. In addition, the prosecutor from the second trial was thrown off the case because it came to light that he signed a book deal for which he was paid $4,000 to write a book about the shooting of David Cam's family. The third trial of David Cam began on August 19th of 2013, and it was a mess. The defense knew exactly what the prosecution had and came prepared to counter it. 
The prosecution was determined to pin this on David no matter what, but they were running out of motives that they could use in court. This time, they decided to rely on the theory that David had killed his family for the $600,000 life insurance policy he would receive. David and Kim had increased insurance policies a few months before the murders, but the timing coincided with David leaving the police force. The insurance rep they went through testified that Kim was very money savvy and asked for the increase because she wanted to make sure that her children's education would be covered if something happened to both Kim and David. This case just gets crazier and crazier. I'm afraid to ever up my family's insurance. (laughs) Something bad (laughs) always seems to happen when people do that. (laughs) Right. I mean, seriously. But life insurance is a common motive, but they weren't in debt. He didn't have a gambling problem, and he had a good job. In his case, it just wouldn't make sense. I agree. They're grasping at straws at this point. Seriously. David's case was the first one taken on by the recently formed Investigating Innocence Project. Bill Clutter, who started the project, was a member of David's defense team and conducted an animated crime scene reconstruction for the jury. Students at the University of Indiana assisted Bill and David's defense team in reviewing the case and provided a fresh pair of eyes. Bill simulated how the actual killer, Charles, braced his left hand, leaving a palm print on the outside of Kim's Ford Bronco as he knelt on the floorboard and extended his right hand to fire the gun that killed Jill and her brother Brad. Rod Engler, the original blood splatter expert, was formally accused of misrepresenting his education, training, and experience. And the consultant he had hired to assess the crime scene, Rob Stites, admitted that he had lied about his credentials in the first trial. He had never been accepted into any PhD or master's program. In fact, he had flunked general chemistry. Rod denied that he was financially encouraged to back up the findings of Rob Stites even though he acknowledged that prosecutors paid his Portland, Oregon firm more than $300,000 for investigative work and the testimony in David's three trials. Under defense questioning, Rod admitted that blood pattern analysis is a subjective science and that no agency has established a set of standards to evaluate it or certify anyone claiming to be an expert in that field. He still refused to officially admit that his analysis could have been wrong. In the end, the defense proved that his testimony was based on junk science. What? This guy is giving Portland a bad name. (laughs) You would think the courts would do a better job of vetting their witnesses before hanging their entire case on their testimony. Conjurers, me and Steph are not claiming this man. He should go to jail for this. (laughs) Or at least be shut down from conning anyone else into hiring him. What else did this trial reveal? This third trial was the only time a jury got to hear all the DNA evidence. Charles' DNA was not only on that sweatshirt, but it was also on Kim's underwear and the arm of Kim's shirt and under one of her broken fingernails. But that wasn't all. His DNA was also found on the stomach of Jill's shirt. This trial was looking really good for David, but at the last minute, the judge told the jury that he would introduce another option for them to consider. He allowed them the option to convict David of conspiracy to commit murder if he thought that he had helped Charles do it. After 10 hours of deliberation on October 24th of 2013, the jury found David not guilty. For the first time in 13 years, he was finally a free man. After the trial, a reporter asked one of the jurors, do you think that they intentionally wanted to convict an innocent man? 
The juror responded, I would hope not, but I sense that the state police had a hard time admitting that they had made a mistake. Third time's a charm. We actually see this a lot with wrongful convictions, where the prosecution and the police refuse to admit that they made a mistake, even when proven wrong by the evidence. Police often have a hard time saying they made a mistake, so that's not surprising. But damn, poor David. So David is finally free, and Charles is safely behind bars. What happened to everyone after it was over? This case has come under fire for prosecutorial misconduct. The prosecution was accused of witness tampering, errors in investigating, evidence tampering, and poor evidence collection. Remember Sergeant Myron who visited Charles in jail when Charles suddenly came up with a convincing story about David being the shooter? It turns out Sergeant Myron is a distant relative of Charles who had no official involvement in the case. It was also revealed that he had removed Kim's phone from the evidence room without signing it out and took it home with him. Charles Bonet filed an appeal of his convictions, but his appeal was denied after a review found no reversible error. Oh my god, Sergeant Myron is even worse than I thought he was. He didn't just feed Charles that story, he tampered with evidence too. This really makes me think Charles had met Kim at some point, and the proof of that connection was in her phone. Yeah, he was definitely trying to protect that weirdo. What about David? In 2016, David won a civil rights lawsuit against Floyd County for $450,000. David also collected over half a million dollars from Kim's life insurance policy and her 401k. Kim's parents, Frank and Janice, originally filed a wrongful death suit against David for the death of their daughter, but eventually they dropped that suit. Instead, they turned their focus to fighting to keep him from having any power over the money from her life insurance and 401k. David already gave Janice $200,000 from her daughter's 401k account back in 2002, while he was still in prison, out of respect for his wife's wishes that her parents be taken care of. But Frank and Janice still believed David had a part in killing Kim and their grandchildren, and they wanted him to pay. In December of 2013, the case was again the subject of an episode of 48 Hours on CBS. In that episode, it was announced that David had been hired as a case coordinator for investigating innocence. The same nonprofit was started by his own defense team to help him, and that his first case would be the Darley Rudier case. That's amazing that he wants to help other people going through what he went through. The Darley Rudier case is another crazy story but her innocence is still debated to this day. If you want to know more about the Darley case, check out one of our early episodes, Season 1, Episode 3, Mommy Dearest, The Murder of Devin and Damon Rudier. David Cam had to suffer 13 years in prison and relive the details of the murder of his wife and children over and over in trial after trial as he fought for his freedom. All because the police and prosecution couldn't admit their own mistakes. Eventually, justice was served. But even though he's a free man, nothing can bring back the family that was taken from him. One of the most sacred principles in the American criminal justice system is that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty. In this case, the authorities decided David was guilty and did everything they could to twist the evidence to fit that belief. David is far from the first or the last innocent person to be convicted of a crime they did not commit. There is something we can do to help. 
Investigating Innocence is a national nonprofit wrongful conviction advocacy organization. They provide investigative support to financially struggling inmates, lawyers, and the Innocence Projects throughout the United States who seek to prove post-conviction claims of actual innocence. Donations assist with paying for DNA testing, investigative, and legal services, as well as expanding their ability to take on more cases. To learn more, visit investigatinginnocence.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan and Lena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail, which just might get featured on the show. You can find the link on our website. Steph, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week? Today I want to tell you about Vogasite. This crystal is known as the Stone of Innocence. It offers true support, guidance, and wisdom for all stages of life. Vogasite is a stone to help open the mind to explore the past and what you need to learn from it, the present and where you are now, the future and all it can be. It opens the body to explore your deepest emotions, hopes, and fears. And finally, it opens the spirit to grow and strengthen and move you forward on your journey to freedom. This sounds like the perfect stone to meditate with and help you start your spiritual journey. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.